Welcome back to Breaking the Chains, stories of survivors and activists in the fight against human trafficking. Our goal is to raise awareness about this critical issue, dispel myths and misconceptions surrounding human trafficking, and provide listeners with actionable steps that they can take to support the fight against modern slavery. Today, we are joined by Ronel Bruder, a PhD student at the University of Toronto's Dalalana School of Public Health. As a doctoral student in social and behavioral sciences, Ronel applies an intersectional and critical lens to her research on gender violence and human trafficking. She examines how broader systems of structural oppression, such as racism, classism, and sexism, lead to trafficking victimization and uses community-based participatory methodologies to develop trauma-informed and strength-based solutions. Alongside her doctoral studies, Ronell is the founder and executive director of Project iRise. This anti-trafficking agency provides free branding tattoo removal for survivors of human trafficking and also runs a survivor leadership program to support healing, enhance skills, and diminish isolation by mutual support. Ronell starts us off with a brief introduction about who she is, her research focuses and background, and tells us a little bit more about Project iRise. Well, I'm, my name is Ronell Bruder. I'm a PhD candidate at the University of Toronto within the Dalai Lama School of Public Health, and my focus is on social and behavioral health sciences. My doctoral research focuses on the experience of women who've been impacted by sex trafficking. Um, and doing this, I'll be taking up an intersectional critical race theory and feminist frameworks. My work within trafficking um, goes beyond, I would say, sort of my academic um, endeavors, also into the community-based work that I've done. And so in 2020, oh my God, it seems like it was so long ago, I founded Project iRise, a community-based anti-trafficking agency, really with a focus on supporting women who've, who've been sex trafficked, finding ways to build vocational skills, leadership, confidence, and really creating a space for community for survivors of trafficking. Through Project iRise, we ran two programs. One was our branding tattoo removal. So this is where we provided free to removal for survivors of trafficking, and as well our survivor leadership program, which was a vocational leadership skills program. That's fantastic, thank you. You mentioned that your work heavily leans on the lenses of intersectionality, of critical race theory, and of feminist frameworks. Could you walk us through what that means and why it's so important to have that framework, especially um, in the realm and specifically in the studies and advocacy related to gender violence and sex trafficking? Yes, absolutely. I think intersectionality really is an ideal analytical framework to look at something like sex trafficking because it interrogates systems of power, privilege, and oppression. It asks us to center the most marginalized voices when we're doing work, and it comes from a social justice lens. So you're not doing intersectional work if you are not actively trying to change the status quo, if you're not trying to promote social justice reform and change. We think of sex trafficking, and we think of human trafficking, I'd say broadly, oftentimes those that are the most marginalized, those are the ones who are most likely to be victimized are, aren't at the center of the conversation. The sort of ideal image of trafficking victimization, the focus thus far has really been on a more you know, cisgender, female, white, young 
um, type of victim. And certainly those people become victims of trafficking and those people need to be protected and that trafficking needs to be prevented. But it oftentimes then ignores this larger group of people who become victimized by trafficking. People of color, particularly women of color, people who are immigrants, people who English isn't their first language, people who are already marginalized in society, who then become further marginalized and become invisible within anti-trafficking work. And so I find intersectionality as, to me, I feel the, the most ideal framework to sort of understand trafficking, but also to look for systems change. So how can we address change? How can we inform policy that will make changes to prevent trafficking, to improve interventions when it comes to trafficking, and really to make, I would say, you know, recovery and supporting of survivors of trafficking in a way that is inclusive, it's trauma-informed, and it really promotes racial justice, gender equity, um, and I could probably go down a list of different things. And, and you had mentioned um, just now in your answer that uh, one of the, I guess, biggest misconceptions of human trafficking is who can be a victim of human trafficking, and that we sort of see this ideal um, victim. Can you talk a little bit more about um, the quote-unquote ideal victim or the ideal survivor of human trafficking and why that uh, portrayal or that characterization of human trafficking can be really harmful to actual survivors or, or real-life advocacy? Yeah, and I think it's it's that one type of victim becomes sort of the central focus of anti-trafficking efforts. And so those who don't sort of embody that image that has been created, that ideal sort of victim, they don't see themselves as victims. They don't see themselves in anti-trafficking campaigns. People who are doing anti-trafficking work then also aren't seeing those people as victims. So the sort of unconscious bias that they're going to carry when, if they're social workers, if they're working in law enforcement, if they're engaged in community work and they themselves have an idea of what victimhood should look like or what how victims should portray. I think and again, kind of going back to intersectionality and I think why the importance of it when doing anti-trafficking work, because when we look at our social political identities, you know, our race, our age, our gender, our immigration status, our sexuality, all these different things create systems of privilege for some of us and also subjugate us. But this is not, it's not sort of happening at one time. You know, if you're a woman, you're you're facing you know, sexism, you're facing misogyny. But if you're a Black woman, you're also then facing misogynoir, you're facing anti-Black racism. If you're an immigrant, you know, you're facing various forms, particularly if you don't speak English, it's not your first language. And so what that does for people as far as their ability to access services, supports, and those varying, the various barriers that they face. And so I think intersectionality particularly asks us to really look at that, to look at how these systems of oppression, how these systems of privilege impact people and how they vary our experiences and can vary people's experiences. And I think when we do that and we apply that to trafficking, it then sort of demands that we look at all the potential victims of trafficking and we create services and programs and policy that will address and support all of them. So yeah, I'm a person who only, I guess, recently started um, becoming more involved um, and, and putting myself in a position to learn about the misconceptions that I had of human trafficking. And I feel like um, going back to your lecture, you had the timeline of sort of what it means to be a good ally. I feel yeah, like I'm toward, yeah, actually becoming more involved and wanting to to donate and to support and you know yeah. lend my time and my money um, to organizations dedicated to anti-human trafficking efforts. But it's definitely overwhelming, I will yeah. admit. <laughs> I don't know where to start sometimes uh, because there's so many organizations out there. And so I was wondering if you could talk um, about or 
give some advice for someone like me um, about how you can identify um, anti-human trafficking organizations that are truly effective, that actually um, empower survivors and put survivors um, at the center of the work that they do. Yes, absolutely. Um, I think the number one thing you have to do is you have to do your research. Uh, you have to take the time to sort of vet any organization that you want to support, whether that's through volunteerism or that's through you know financial donations, um, which is very simple. I mean, just going online, looking at their website, looking at who's a part of that organization. So who sits on the board of directors? Who's part of the team? Do you have representation? Do you have diversity within the team? You know, diversity within age, race, gender, all the sexuality, all those different things. Do, are there people with lived experience a part of that organization on that team? You know, and are they only in sort of entry level type of positions or are you seeing them in more sort of decision-making leadership type of positions? And also what is the message that, that they're sort of giving out about anti-trafficking and their approach to address trafficking? And so oftentimes we see organizations come with a very paternalistic idea of how, you know, we're saving people. We're here to rescue these women. You see kind of those headlines all the time. Um, which can be very dangerous. It's the idea, again, that you have to save somebody as opposed to empowering people who are survivors of trafficking to take ownership over their own lives, um, being able to help them and direct them to the services that are available, but understanding and recognizing that that process of change can be really difficult for a lot of people that can be overlapped with trauma, with addiction, with mental health, with so many different things. And so just being there as a support system rather than you know, trying to impose your beliefs or your ideas on how someone should live their life, I think is very important. But really just doing that work, doing that due diligence, taking your time, learning about organizations, you know, and calling them, reaching out. I mean, I think nowadays everyone has like an email online, so you can easily reach out and, you know, you're interested in this organization, you want to learn a little bit more, you know, how do they collaborate with people with lived experience, you know, or do they not? You know, questions like that, I think, are fair, um, particularly if you want to, you know, give your, your, your money or your time to an organization. And I know that um, empowering survivors is the center of what you do at Project iRise. And you had mentioned in the introduction of Project iRise, one of your very successful initiatives, which is the tattoo removal service. Um, to be honest, that's the first time I've heard of an anti-trafficking mm. organization doing something like that. Although, like I said, I'm just entering this, this sort of sphere for the first time. Yeah. I was wondering if you could talk more about um, the origins of that initiative and mm. how it's positively impacted um, survivors of trafficking. And so that was our first, you know, program that came out of Project I Rise. And it really started with one woman who I, I knew personally who had come to me and in a conversation had confided that she had these tattoos that she couldn't afford to remove. It's very costly to, to remove tattoos. I don't know if you're aware of that. I don't have any tattoos, so I wasn't. Um, but it can cost upwards of over $1,000, you know, to remove these tattoos. And so she had had them. She wanted them removed and asked me if I knew anybody or any agency that provided that service. And I didn't. You know, and so that kind of spurred an idea in my head. Well, if it doesn't exist, maybe we can do something about that. And so with the, you know, the small team that we had at the time, which was really a volunteer um, led team, we started a GoFundMe, raised some money. We we're able to raise over, oh my gosh, like over $12,000 in our GoFundMe with the, with the idea that we wanted to raise this money to remove brain tattoos from survivors of trafficking. Our goal was to remove, I think what we had said sort of like in our GoFundMe, 20 tattoos from 20 survivors. Mm -hmm. In reality, we ended up removing, we ended up working with 16 survivors of trafficking and removing, I believe, 20 tattoos from them. And so what happened was 
when we started to engage with young women who would reach out to us looking for the service, they oftentimes had more than one tattoo. Mm -hmm. And so they wanted, and of course they wanted all of them removed. You know, they didn't want to have anything of that on their body as that constant reminder. And so, you know, we, we didn't want to turn anyone down. So they had more than one tattoo. We always try to oblige and remove as many as we could. Um, and I can tell you that even now we, we have interest. We have people reaching out, you know, wanting to know, is the service still available? And unfortunately, it was time limited because we did have that money that we raised and we, you know, we didn't have any more money um, that we could sort of put forward to that initiative. But there definitely, I would say, still is very much a demand for the service, unfortunately. Appreciate you talking about how your expectations for the project changed and evolved throughout duration of it and how you guys gained the understanding of how some people might have multiple tattoos. So sort of taking a step in the fantasy direction, if you were able to have a GoFundMe or a fundraiser that raised millions of dollars and you were awarded millions of resources for Project iRise, in addition to expanding or continuing the tattoo removal initiative, what other projects do you think you would want to start? I'm like, hmm, unlimited funds, okay. <laughs> well, yeah, for sure, you know, restarting the brain tattoo removal service because I do think there's so much need within the community. Um, and I think we want to look back at our survivor leadership program that we ran. And so with that, that was an online program. We were able to work with 15 survivors of trafficking. We provided, you know, different mentorship training, really, really interesting workshops that we did over that one year. We learned a lot, though, too, from that, from that one program that we did. And I think, you know, wanting to do something like that again, I think expanding it, um, I think making it maybe in person, there was a lot that was, and I mean, and I love Zoom and I love sort of the whole remote, you know, work um, thing, but there's kind of a lot missed when you're doing things remote as far as building community. And I think if we had been able to have an actual like brick and mortar space, we could have people come in sort of like a safe space that, you know, people with lived experience, survivors trafficking knew they could come in, that they could be provided, you know, services, mentorship, you know, if they're, you know, case management, if they needed maybe referrals into the community for, you know, various housing and things like that. Like really, I think almost like a one-stop shop hub of mm -hmm. services in a building where people could come in would be like the ideal. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh. And I hope you don't mind. I would love to take a step back. And I realize mm -hmm. there's actually some, I guess, blanks for me that I, mm -hmm. I realize I just don't understand. So as an anti-trafficking organization that works with survivors, I'm actually wondering how you get connected with survivors, yeah. whether it's your um, team's own personal outreach or whether um, you have partner organizations that, you know, connect you with people that they think might be victims of human trafficking. And then you do perhaps like, um, you know, interviews with them yeah. just to see, you know what their situation is um because I think a lot of people myself included don't actually understand how difficult it is to not only um provide services to survivors but even identify survivors in the first place yes no um and so because of the work that I've done within the community anti-trafficking community um I've worked with different agencies I've provided consultation I've done you know a lot of research so I've built up sort of a network within the community and mm -hmm. so when we did project I rise we were able to reach out to that network and say hey we're running this leadership program we're starting a branding tattoo removal program do you know anyone that might be interested and so a lot of the times that people were being referred that way also survivors know other survivors so then they would kind of refer, you know, oh, my friend told me about you guys. She worked with you. She kind of knows you. And so that was kind of, you know, so it was kind of like that word of mouth, I guess, like snowballing effect that would happen as well, too. And I think but, you know, it's not it's not easy. And I think it's important to note that I'm glad you brought it up because you can't just go into a community as an outsider. 
and assume that people are just going to be interested in talking to you, that they're going to trust you, that they're going to want to work with you. Mm -hmm. You have to take your time. You have to build that trust in that community. You have to do the work. You can't kind of like skip that step. Um, And so a lot of times when it comes to even researchers and they want to do a research study on a particular vulnerable community, they kind of want to just go in there and start doing interviews, you know, but you have to build that trust and it takes time to do that. And so that, I mean, if anyone was interested, I would really suggest, you know, kind of finding who are the gatekeepers in the community that you live in and going in there, taking your time, meeting with folks consistently, you know, building that trust. And it could take time. It could take over a year, you know what I mean, to really build trust before people are going to want to maybe like work with you or even before they're going to want to start referring their clients to you. Because oftentimes so many agencies come and go, so many people with like really good intentions end up in this space but they don't know what they're doing. Um, They haven't really taken the time to truly understand what human trafficking is and they cause a lot of harm to survivors. Yeah, I think that goes back to what you were saying before about not being paternalistic or having this savior mindset when you go into human trafficking advocacy. Um, You can't come in and just expect that people will be automatically grateful and and willing to to trust you. Human trafficking is a horrific subject and you're working with people who have gone through a lot of trauma. We imagine that being an advocate in the space would weigh on you. So we were wondering how you sort of manage that. How do you bear the responsibility of knowing that you're trying to help these people who have gone through something really horrific while also taking care of yourself and prioritizing your own mental health as well? Yeah, and I think, you know, vicarious trauma is, it's it's a real thing. It happens all the time. Burnout happens. I've experienced that myself in doing this work. So I'm very sort of hyper aware of sort of self-care, um, sort of, you know, ensuring I'm sort of taking that, you know, that rest, that relaxation. And I think for me, it's just about, it's about a balance. You know, this is work that I do. I'm very passionate about this work, but it's not my life. You know, there's many things outside of this work that I do. Obviously, I have my family, I have my friends, you know what I mean? I have all these other things. I have interests and hobbies and things that I do. And so there, for me, there has to be some separation. And so I'm able to do this work, but I'm also able to, you know, go with the girls, you know, for the evening on the town and have some drinks or go see a show and, you know, and do those types of things. Um, I think if it becomes, you know, this overpowering every day, all day of your life, you know, focus, that can be dangerous. It can, even if you're trying to do good work, if you have the best of intentions, it can be dangerous on yourself. And so for me, I'm really cognizant about that sort of like work-life balance. Yeah. And if you were to give advice to, um, I guess a college student, we'll say college student, um, who wants to become more involved in this space for the first time, um, what would you say should be their first steps in addition to, I know you've talked about doing research on potential organizations to support, what other things could someone, who, who has my background potentially do to contribute? Well, I think the first thing I would say that you've, you've done successfully is you've taken a human trafficking course at college. <laughs> That's probably the, you know, the first thing to do. So you can understand the issue. You can understand it from varying different perspectives. Um, you understand, you know, human trafficking, labor protecting, the sort of social political element to it, the, you know, sort of racial societal element, like all these different, I think, aspects of trafficking you're able to understand when you take the course that you've done. And then, you know, you do your research, you kind of find maybe organizations, you know, within your area that may be interested in. And then I would suggest, you know, going there, you know, kind of going to an organization, picking one, maybe one that you can volunteer at. Nonprofits are always looking for volunteers. (laughs) They usually run on like, you know, 
the smallest of budget, budgets you can ever imagine. Um, so they're always looking for, you know, uh, people who want to come in and volunteer and help. And so finding an organization that's maybe close to where you live, that speaks to you, your values, um, that has that really, like I said, survivor-centered approach. And, you know, maybe doing some volunteer, kind of seeing what's out there. Because you don't really know, I think, what is, what potential opportunities might exist or where your interests might lie until you kind of take that first step. Because there's, I mean, human trafficking is a huge issue and there's so many different ways to approach it. You know, I do a very much a public health lens, very much through academia and community work. But, you know, there's a huge area within, you know, like the legal aspect of it, within the criminal justice system, within government, within policy. So there's so many different ways, I think, that you can approach this work. So it's just kind of finding what speaks to you, what resonates. Yeah. That's fantastic. And I will make my last question, um, kind of again, delving into the fantasy world. Yeah. But um, if you could have, you know, uh, two hours to sit with President Joe Biden or whatever <laughs> policymaker, and you yeah. knew that after the, yeah. the conversation, they would enact, you know, certain human yeah. and mm-hmm. policies. Um, what would you say governments and maybe civil society and NGOs need to prioritize in the immediate timeframe um, in order to uh, address the issue of human trafficking? Hmm, that is a good question. You know, I would, I think it's the prevention. Mm-hmm. I think prevention efforts, um, and I will say, obviously, intervention efforts, which oftentimes involve law enforcement, and the legal, and the criminal justice system are important, and recovery efforts to support survivors are equally as important. But I think, you know, you want to prevent the crime from happening in the first place. And so what does prevention look like? Prevention could look like training and education for, you know, for teachers, for, you know, community members, for parents, for youth. But it's also addressing the underlying root causes that push people into trafficking, that make them like more likely to be victims of trafficking. So poverty, mm-hmm. you know, things like that, that I think if we're just sort of looking at trafficking as, well, we just want to train people how to identify the red flags of it. Yes, that's helpful, but we want to prevent it from happening. We want to build a society in which young people are protected, that they're safe, that they have mental health issues, they have resources, free resources that they can access. If they have you know, addiction issues, there's free resources they can access. If they're struggling with poverty, if they, if they have no jobs in their community, that makes them more vulnerable to somebody trying to exploit them. So to me, I think one area that I haven't seen as much work in is in prevention efforts. So that's probably where I would focus my attention um, with government and government funding. If I had, if I had Joe Biden's ear or Kamala Harris's ear. <laughs> that's fantastic. Yeah. Um, and then before we end, I just want to give you a space if there's anything you want to add that you think um, is an especially important message for anyone listening to take away from this conversation. Yeah, well, first, I want to thank you for inviting me here today um, to this podcast. It was a wonderful, incredible experience, you know, lecturing, meeting the students there, seeing the interest um, from the students. I mean, I think that gave me such hope for the future. Because like I said, you know, it's, it's the next generation, that oftentimes the ones that will go out there, they're going to raise the hell, they're going to, they're going to demand change in society. And so that's what I would say to people, if there's something that you see, that you feel is unjust in society, if there's something you, that you don't agree with, you have so much power in your voice to make a change. Because if all of us believe that there's nothing that we can do, that this we're just doomed and this is the way society is, we do nothing. But if we believe it, someone else will believe it too. And then a mass of people start to believe it. And that's how change happens. That's what I would tell anyone who's listening um, is really 
if you see something and you want to change it, be the first one, take that step and make a change. Use your voice, advocate, support, volunteer, do whatever you can within your capacity. I'm um, obviously honoring your own self-care, your own mental health, um, but be the change that you want to see in the world. And I think I'm quoting somebody. <laughs> and that was Gandhi, sorry. No, no, no. I was Thank you for listening to this episode of Breaking the Chains, stories of survivors and activists in the fight against human trafficking. We hope that our podcast has helped raise awareness and inform listeners more about the critical issue of human trafficking. If you're looking for ways to help out, take a look into survivor-focused anti-trafficking initiatives, such as Project iRise. Thanks for joining us today.